SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Just a few days out from this year's CUSA Championship game, which hard to believe that it took us uh, this long to get to that point. But the fact that we got there at all is nothing short of marvelous. And also, National Signing Day happened this week, so we'll have a little bit to uh, talk about in the middle section with regards to that. Joe Lonergan here with you once again, alongside, of course, Eric Henry. How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing all right, man. Can't complain. It is a overcast. I mean, now dark. We're taping now at about 545 Eastern time, but we've got tornado warnings and all kinds of stuff uh, going around here, which is rather unseasonable for this time of year. But yeah, man, a, a late rainy evening here in the Sunshine State. Right. I'm in the Midwest today, but from seeing texts from my friends back in the Pacific Northwest, it's been dark for about two hours at this point. <laughs> so, you know, wintertime, uh, I didn't miss you, if I'm being completely honest, but here we go. Um, I, d- I don't know. I like the cold weather. I just don't like the fact that it gets dark so early, which good old seasonal depression. It's not uh, not my favorite thing. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about uh, some scores from CUSA this past week. Uh, on the Thursday night game, we had Southern Miss beating FAU 45-31. to uh, Pretty good day for Trey Lowe, 209 yards through the air, two touchdowns. Uh, Frank Gore Jr., uh, efficient day to say the least, nine carries for 111 yards and a touchdown there. Uh, not the best performance we've ever seen from FAU, obviously, um, but uh, kind of a down note to end the regular season on for them. But – uh, I think for Southern Miss, if nothing else, this kind of shows that like they do have some pieces to get going in the right direction after everything they've been through this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, here was the big thing for me, right? And if you look at the timeline which that game was played, Thursday game, automatically, you know, something, something funky is going to kind of happen, especially for college kids coming off of, what's that, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, four-day schedule where everything is compressed. And not even that, but just the – coronavirus pandemic itself right you know it's if this were the nfl i guess you'd expect to say like hey the more talented team should win but you are talking about college kids and kind of no disrespect to southern miss but kind of fluky results like this will happen so credit southern miss especially being on their third head coach and tim billings and you know the kids there who are remaining were able to get a get a win in front of their new head coach and will hall who was in attendance there but all things considered, I think that was really the, the main thing that really kind of made up for this result. And, and you got to give the, the Southern Miss defense credit in that they did a good job stopping not only the FAU run, but Nick Tronti uh, as a passer, 17 of 33. So not much there. And then Frank Gore Jr. Uh, appears to be the future, you know, whether or not Trey Lowe. Trey, I believe he's Trey Lowe the second. Uh, I, I believe I've seen him on Twitter. Um, or it could be the third. <laughs> that ends the Trey. But nevertheless, he had a solid game as a passer. Uh, Kaiser as Southern Miss tries to move past the Jack Abraham era, but Frank Gore Jr. nine carries for a buck eleven, one touchdown, broke a seventy-three yarder. Jason Brownlee, an, another young prospect who was recruited by FIU, ironically, three catches for eighty-one yards and a touchdown. So that's just kind of my uh, assessment of that ball game. Okay, any thoughts on FAU and and how they performed? Uh, obviously, not. Uh, I think it's safe to say a lot of people kind of expected them to win this game, uh, even with the adversity that they've faced this year. Um, but what'd you take away from their performance? Again, I mean, I really been chalking it up to Joe, chalking it up, Joe, excuse me, to just kind of going on the short week. And 
you know, you and I have talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Their quarterback situation is still in flux. And I don't necessarily mean that as if it's in a negative state, but they're working through through two guys and Nick Tronti and Javian Posey, who would be first time starters this year anyhow. Uh, James Charles led the way with 79 yards, but think about it. You got no BJ Emmons who was hurt early on. Malcolm Davidson did not play as well. So there definitely were, you know, some factors there for FAU, just as far as offensively speaking, that kind of hurt them. And defensively, I guess that's probably the biggest surprise, right? Because uh, you're talking about two and seven Southern Miss team that you don't expect to put up 45 points against a very solid FAU defense. But all in all, I, I genuinely think this is one of those games, Joe, not to, again, not to take anything away from Southern Miss, I don't like calling wins fluky, you know, two teams play and, 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 you know, that you got to settle down on the field. Right. But it's one of those things coming off of a a short week, four days. If you play this game 10 times, FAU probably wins nine, but this is the one that Southern Miss won. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, We'll see how both these teams kind of move into the off season with everything that they've had to face Um, with that. Then let's talk about Friday night's game with UTEP and North Texas. The mean green win that one 45 to 43 in a little bit of a nail biter, a monster game. Once again, for Jalen Darden, eight catches for 173 yards and four touchdowns. Hope you had him and Austin Ani on your fantasy team as he completes 16 of 29 for 302 yards and uh, five touchdowns there. Uh, Not to take anything away from what we saw out of Calvin Brownholtz on the UTEP side, 15 carries for 114 rushing yards and two touchdowns there. And I mean, you know, I think we've been saying this about the UTEP team quite a bit, but it, it definitely bears repeating with respect to this game. Um, they've improved so much. Like if this had been a game in 2019 or, or 2018, you know, I, if you told me UTEP hangs with North Texas to the point that they only lose by two games, I would have said you're crazy, but it shows how much that they're continuing to improve. And speaking of improvement, like North Texas really had a rough start to this year, just with their defense, which didn't perform great. But what we did see was uh, some significant development from both Ostinani and and Jason Bean and then Jalen Darden really kind of growing into himself in terms of just uh, being a, a legit threat and turning the eyes of some NFL scouts, hopefully. Well, if NFL scouts eyes are turned by Jalen Darden at this point, I don't know what else is going to help him, because as we've stated on this podcast the past couple of weeks, he is not a product of the North Texas offense. He is a stud receiver, one that luckily for North Texas, they were able to play, you know, seven, eight games, or excuse me, nine, 10 games this year. So his numbers were able to bear out. Uh, I looked at a guy like Victor Tucker, who, you know, was only able to play in six games and yet Vic still had a great season. And it's really between he, uh, he being Victor Tucker and Jalen Darden for who's the top receiver in conference USA. But Joe, this is the thing I want to talk about 45, 43 ball game. Did you have a chance to, um, to, to, I don't know if you had a chance to see any of this game or even, you know, look, take a look at the final numbers, but Calvin Brownholtz was a late start. You know, wasn't expected to uh, to to start uh, in place of Gavin Hardison. And the two touchdowns he had were late touchdowns. There was a point in the game, I want to say up until the third quarter, where he had no touchdowns before interceptions. You flip those interceptions around. If he's able to at least protect the football a little bit, I'm not coming down on brown holes. Because he's a, I, I want to say, if, if memory serves me correct, it was the first start he was making since high school mm-hmm. and performed well as a rusher with the 15 carries for a buck 14 and two scores. But if they're able to protect the football, Joe, they, there's a very good chance they win this game. And again, I'm not taking anything away from North Texas's defense because they certainly did force those turnovers. But the, 
I, I'm not trying to say that the score isn't indicative of, of the game because it was a, um, a two-point game. But I guess, Joe, the best way I can sum up what I'm trying to get across is this. If you take a look at the UTEP receiving, Jacob Cowing, Walter Dawn, and Justin Garrett, only three receivers caught passes for UTEP. There was a point in time in the third quarter in which I believe between those three guys, they only had four catches. So I'm just trying to emphasize that this was very much a winnable game for UTEP if, if they get a little better performance out of their quarterback. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you throw four interceptions, then, you know, you're lucky that you stay in the game to the extent that they did. Um, but no, that's all a really solid point about uh, Brown Holtz and, and the type of day that he had against North Texas. Um, so with that, let's talk about the craziness that was uh, the end of the race for the CUSA West title this weekend. Uh, it came down to the Rice and UAB game in Houston. Blazers win that one 21 to 16. Um, man, I really thought uh, for a second here, Rice was going to end up pulling this out. They took a 13 to 7 lead into halftime. And then in the third quarter, they came out. Uh, extremely flat, but then we saw UAB kind of come alive. Tyler Johnston really took charge, especially in that second half. Uh, he finished the day nine of 18 for 217 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, and then of course, seven carries on the ground for 41 yards as well. It really, if you go back and look at the tape from this game, I think UAB just came out in the second half and were like, let's just go after this rice secondary, take some, ch uh, take some chances deep down the field and see what happens. And it paid off. It was a, you know, calculated risk, I guess, but really I think they were just kind of looking at how, you know, tired Rice seemed to get and how the injuries kind of started to pile up from them. You saw Blaze Aldridge uh, exit late in that game, uh, had some other injuries to that uh, deep secondary as well. But, um, you know, credit to Bill Clark for just being aware and being able to call the right plays and, and get his team the, you know, another division title here. I think that's their third in a row. Joe, this one was really hard to assess, right? Because you look at it and you got UAB 21, Rice 16. Rice came in and they were missing their starting quarterback in Mike Collins, right? Down to Giovanni Johnson and Wiley Green. We all know what UAB was coming to this game with. And for those listeners who may not know, UAB was down, I believe the number was something about two dozen players due to uh, contact tracing with coronavirus. So it's hard to assess was this a game that UAB won or was one that, that Rice lost, right? And, and really trying to assess who was the better team. I'll say this. My biggest takeaway, again, and this is not a critique, but uh, a critique per se on Tyler Johnson or Bill Clark. But I actually looked back, Joe, at the past four years of UAB offense in terms of passing. They've hovered right around the 55, 56% mark in passing for the past four years. So it's not just a blip in the in, in the uh, um, in a trend. When I read off Tyler Johnson's numbers, nine of 18 for 217, two touchdowns. Why do I make the point of saying that to you? Because as you said, in your kind of summarization of the game, what UAB decided to do was just take some shots downfield. And I'm not, <laughs> they won the game. So I'm not trying to come down too hard on them. But there's a lot of the UAB offense that feels like, not necessarily a regression, but no Spencer Brown. You know, the team was kind of, as we said, they they weren't full strength and there's a part of the offense that's like we're just taking deep shots right we got myron mitchell we got some deep threats there you know whether it was austin watkins the year before or kendall parm or guys like that we got burners on the outside we're just going to take shots and see what happens and luckily for bill clark and uab they had enough left in the tank to win defensively when you got jordan smith who had two sacks chris mole who had a sack uh the the, the guys noah wilder dijon turner you know bronte harris when you have guys like that um 
and your defense, you're going to be able to make plays. And that kind of showed where Rice, who they pride themselves on that intellectual brutality. I think there was a, a scoring drive early on this game where I think they went something like 18 plays and 60-something yards and eat up 10 minutes a clock, right? That's the kind of offense that they pride themselves on being. And UAB will do a great job holding the Rice to 39 carries and 66 yards. So all in all, I know I kind of went a couple different places there, but just kind of my big takeaway is that maybe if Rice has Mike Collins, someone who's throwing 10 touchdowns and only one interception this year, um, you know, they, they can they kind of muster up a little more offense to win this game. And especially for UAB, the big thing is just kind of the quarterback plays much of the same that we've seen for the past four years, which has been enough to get it done. And that's probably a credit to Bill Clark in a sense, and that they've been able to win without or in spite of phenomenal quarterback play. But it is something that you'll look forward to seeing next week against Marshall and trying to win that CUSA title. Absolutely. And we'll get into previewing that uh, CUSA title game in a little bit. But, you know, I, I do want to make one more note about the Rice offense, and you kind of hit on it a little bit. They had that drive in the first quarter that took like 10 minutes, something close to it. It was, it was really something to watch. But you fast forward to the second half when you see Giovanni Johnson go down. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of saw that and thought, you know, oh, well, <laughs> this this just got uh, a lot sadder for the Rice faithful, um, which, you know, not to speak too ill of, of Wiley Green, but I think when you put his, you know, kind of ability next to Giovanni Johnson, I think Johnson was a, a significant step up. Um, but the fact that he went down, you can't help but wonder what the result would have been if he had been able to uh, stay healthy for the entirety of the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, that's just one of those things that, you know, for Rice, it feels like this season's kind of going to kind of go down as like coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know what I mean? And not in the sense of injuries um, being the sole factor, but just them getting such a late start to the year. And then maybe, you know, if they don't have the, the quadruple doink against Middle Tennessee, who goes who knows what happens there. But I, I don't know how you feel, Joe, and then we can transition after this, but I don't feel... Uh, maybe it's me personally. I'm, I'm curious how Rice feel. Rice fans feel. This didn't feel like a letdown coming off of the upset of Marshall. This felt like we weren't full strength. We got nicked up during the game, and yet we fought a very good UAB team tooth and nail as opposed to, all right, we fell back down to earth, if that makes sense. It does for me. I think you kind of look at the steps that Rice has taken since my, uh, Mike Bloomgren took over, and it's very apparent that they're headed in the right direction. So if you're a Rice fan, you can at least uh, you know, end the season with, with, that, um, with that accolade in your pocket. Then we have uh, TCU beating Louisiana Tech to round out the weekend 52-10. to 10. Um, you know, I think we kind of expected this to be a little bit closer. At least that's uh, my recollection of our conversation from last week, Eric. Ultimately, this was just a case of TCU being, you know, a more uh, filled out team in terms of healthy players for one and two, just kind of uh, higher level recruits from the start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you and I expect it to be a little bit closer. We didn't expect a 42 point loss in, in that case for Louisiana Tech and it's one of those things again I, Joe this was a game that took place on short notice this was not a game that was on La Tech schedule and mm -hmm. you and I both being Conference USA guys we probably would have wanted to see this game played in a normal year with both teams full strength and then see what happens and and, and if that were the case the the end result of the game might not be any different in terms of a TCU win but we think the the actual final score would have borne out to be a little bit closer and one of the you know big things for Louisiana Tech uh, was Luke Anthony's injury right you know as we mentioned early on maybe the final score of the game wasn't what we expected but you hate to see a kid 
get as as injured as or as what the injury appears to be in the case of Luke Anthony suffered a very gruesome ankle injury. And that's one of the things that for a five and four Louisiana Tech team that accepted a bowl berth, A, he will not be able to play in that game, but B, more importantly, what his future will be heading into 2021. That's going to be something that'll be interesting and, and worth watching, especially, especially, excuse me, in a year like this, that was so crazy. And just the sacrifice that these kids have had to make, you hate to see that happen for a, a young man like him who's getting a shot there at Louisiana Tech. He's played really good football. If you look at the, the numbers uh, at the quarterback position, he's really been, you know, the steady performer there um, for, uh, for Louisiana Tech, excuse me. But outside of that, yeah, I mean, not much else was going. Israel Tucker, who's been a pleasant surprise in, in the run game, 10 carries for 28 yards. And, and also you got to factor in, in the amount of opt-outs that Louisiana Tech has had over the past few weeks in terms of, you know, whether it's been guys like uh, Adrian Hardy and, of course, the left tackle, uh, whose name's escaping me right now, Donovan Campbell, the LSU transfer. So that certainly didn't help their chances either. Yeah, no, that's uh, all solid points. So Louisiana Tech ends their regular season five and four. And as you mentioned, they've accepted a berth to a bowl game. So we'll see uh, what their postseason plans entail as more news comes out over the next week or so. Uh, so with that, then before we get into uh, National Signing Day talk, let's talk about some uh, pretty significant transfer news um, from throughout CUSA, starting with Malik Staples, uh, played both uh, running back and linebacker in, in separate windows of time at Western Kentucky. Um, and of course, prior to that, played at Louisville, but he has entered the transfer portal as a grad transfer. So, um, you know, first of all, I think it's going to be interesting, not this upcoming draft class, but the the 2022 draft class i guess um i think we're going to see a higher number of these guys who have, have played at three different schools during their time i mean it's certainly not unheard of but given the fact that in terms of eligibility this year is more or less a wash and that it's not going to count towards um you know kids total years of eligibility that they get under ncaa rules i feel like you know because there's been a few different instances of this um that we've even talked about with ncusa but we're going to see more and more um kids play at three schools heading into that 22 2022 draft class it feels like yeah most definitely and, and you know man it's one of the things that you and i've talked about a lot we are not going to crucify kids for transferring school to school to school because you and i both transferred schools at points and times in our educational career so mm -hmm. not going to be mad at it I, and it's one of the things joe that i think fans would have to get used to i wrote an article a couple years ago about Essentially, the transport portal uh, going to become uh, not become Conference USA's, excuse me, but it could be could become college football's version of free agency. And especially given some of the circumstances around the coronavirus and eligibility issues, I think that's something you'll see. So, no issues on on you know either of our ends. It's just something that college football fans it might not taste right to them if that makes sense you know their palate isn't used to having players switch from school to school typically you put on your school's uniform and you ride it out for four years and we send you off on signing day right uh, on, excuse me, on, on senior day not on signing day um but yeah I, I think that's the biggest thing that fans will have to adjust to yeah absolutely but i mean i think with regards to to staples i mean they're gonna need help in the running back room no doubt um, as uh, we talked about on last week's show. And um, with more and more kind of, of their team, you know, leaving following this year, um, you know, we talk about guys like Garland of France, Garland LaFrance, who is in that running back room as well. He, he left. Um, they're going to have to bolster that position as well as the, uh, the quarterback room, which we've already talked about. Um, speaking of quarterbacks, Charlotte got a big one with uh, former four-star quarterback James Foster at Texas A&M 
transferring to Charlotte. So with the um, eventual departure of Chris Reynolds, uh, looks like Will Healy is going to have a very high-level QB coming in to take the reins there. Yeah, yeah. How about this, Joe, right? I just want to get your thoughts on this here for a second. Uh, And I know I'm putting you on the spot, so I apologize. But, you know, Will Healy, you had the buzz surrounding him going potentially to Vanderbilt. He went on Charlotte Radio earlier this week and said, I'm not going anywhere. And I just want to get your thoughts on this, right, uh, before I go. Not for, To me, it's not necessarily that a four-star quarterback is coming into Conference USA, mm-hmm. even though that is still be a rarity. Shador Sanders, had he gone to FAU, would have been one of the few. But that Will Healy's managing to really make Charlotte a destination. And I, and I think that's something that's pretty interesting, right? And as you said, the quarterback position will be in pretty good hands where, it, you know, if you're Charlotte, fast forward down the line two years from now, and Chris Reynolds is gone – and you got this kid, if he's able to pan out, I mean, that feels like a pretty good kind of like a, like a coup for, for Will Healy, right? In a sense. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Obviously, if you look at the place that Marshall football was in uh, three years ago, the fact that they're doing this now in, in such a short window of time is all the more impressive. Um, and yeah, credit to Will Healy for turning the Charlotte football program into some place that, um, players like James Foster want to transfer to and try to make an impact. Absolutely. And I think the big thing for me in terms of James Foster on the field is just kind of the presence he, he commands as, as being a really highly touted recruit and especially one that at least in that offense, it, it, it always seems to me that whether um, it's been Chris Reynolds or whoever they've tried to bring in, it's someone who can use their legs and, and not just be a traditional pocket passer, right? They're going to come in and kind of, use their legs and make plays and, and create for the offense. So I think that'll be key. But again, when you're talking about someone like him, you know, who, who isn't, although 247 doesn't list him as a quote-unquote um, uh, dual threat, you know, I believe they have him listed as a, as a pro-style quarterback. He's someone who's going to use his legs and, and make plays. So someone who, who was enrolled at Texas A&M and the kid out of Montgomery, Alabama, I just think it's great for that program. A, a big kid, 6'4", 220, he's going to make some plays. He can sit behind Chris Reynolds for a year. And then, you know, maybe take over next year in 2022. So we'll see how that goes. It's going to be interesting to watch. That's for sure. And uh, while COSA gained some talent in that regard, they're also losing some uh, defensive end. Keon White from Old Dominion entered the transfer portal. Didn't spend very long there as he is now a member of the Georgia Tech team. So, uh, Eric, I know we've talked about Old Dominion's just ability to develop defensive linemen um, over the last um couple of years of Shane Zimenez being like a, a really good example of that. But um, I don't know any thoughts on kind of where the old dominion defensive unit goes from here as they re-enter the conference more or less in 2021. This one hurt me, Joe, this one hurt mm-hmm. me because I know it's been a while since we talked ODU football. I think the last time we really got into it in depth was a, when they chose to sit this season out and B when we had the, national recruiting analyst on from rivals.com who mentioned that that area there, that Norfolk area, he projects that to be one of the up and coming rising areas in terms of recruiting, but Joe on the field. And I tweeted this out from both my account and the underdog dynasty account on the field. Keon white had a hell of a 2019 season over 60 tackles, 19 and excuse me, 19 tackles for loss, three and a half sacks. And what he reminded me of was Alex Highsmith. Alex Highsmith had that kind of year in 2018 where he racked up the tackles, the tackles behind the line of scrimmage, but didn't necessarily have that boom in the sack category, right? And in 2019, he exploded, and I believe he had 12 or 13 sacks and set the program record there at Charlotte. It just felt like Keon White was primed for that, especially with 
guys like um, Derek Wilder there. I, I always forget to mix up Derek and Noah. So I apologize on the hesitation there. Derek Wilder, the son of former head coach Bobby Wilder, who had committed to play for Ricky Ronnie, decided he was going to stay despite his, his, his father being dismissed at, at Old Dominion. That would have been such a fearsome defensive line right there. And, and the guys they have uh, in the secondary who were really good as well. It hurts me, man. You know, as work CUSA guys, we're G5 guys at heart. So this one hurts me, but wish him nothing but best of luck heading to Georgia Tech. And I'm more than sure to help his NFL chances. Not that I don't think he wouldn't have gotten there anyhow at, at ODU, but, you know, hey, uh, an entire year of hopefully he's been keeping himself in shape and training. And I'm expecting monster numbers from him. Uh, hey, CUSA's loss is the American, or excuse not the American, it's uh, the ACC's game. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's just kind of my thoughts on that one. Fair enough. And then uh, I think that's about all the transfer news we had uh, for this. And uh, one more piece of news before we get into NSU talk. Uh, UTSA were scheduled to play SMU in the Frisco Bowl this month. Uh, however, they have dropped out due to, uh, well, SMU uh, rather has dropped out due to uh, COVID-19 concerns. Um, looking like UTSA is going to play in a different bowl game. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's the first responder bowl that they've uh, accepted a bid from now, correct? Correct. Correct. Fair enough. So uh, obviously we, we get to see a little bit more UTSA football before the year's end, which is great. Um, to my knowledge, I don't think they've found an opponent yet. Is that right? Not yet. To the, to the, um, at, currently at this taping, they do not have an opponent yet. But I'm, at Fair some enough. Point, they'll, they'll find one. It will not be a scrimmage, correct? Uh, so SMU, I mean, obviously would have liked to see them play one more game too, but um, I think we kind of knew this was going to happen with bowl season, right? We were going to get to this point, and we've seen it with teams like Pitt and Boston College kind of just saying like, you know what, we're just not even going to mess with the postseason because, um, you know, I think, it, I think it was Boston College too, actually. Um, last year, the year before, you know, ended up playing in a bowl game that got just – straight up canceled due to lightning so like i don't know i think for a lot of these teams where like you play in these smaller bowl games and don't end up getting like huge checks from it like you add on top of that the danger that comes with traveling and, and everything else covid19 related i again we knew this was going to happen <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's um joe you know what this reminds me of in a weird way oh man what bowl game was a couple of years ago that got delayed not delayed they had to cancel it at halftime. Uh, you know what game was it? Boise State. Do you know the bowl game I'm talking about? I think so. I mean, I the one that I just referenced. I'm pretty sure that got canceled before anybody even got played. Um, I don't remember anything Boise State related. I see now. For those guys listening, this is great show prep, right? We're doing this on the fly as we're taping. But the the broader point I'm making here is just kind of goes to show you how unpredictable that, you know, things can be. And then you throw in the fact that we're dealing such a, with such a crazy year this year with the pandemic. And, you know, sometimes bowl season doesn't go off without a hitch, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think, I think we're thinking of the same game, actually the, the 2018 are, right? yeah. first responder bowl between uh, Boston college and Boise state. Uh, okay. Okay. Being canceled yeah, yeah. due to severe weather. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is. It is. I thought it was at halftime because in my, in my head, I remember watching that game, waiting for it to start. And it felt like I'd watched a quarter of play, but you, you nailed it. You're correct, Joe. <laughs> I do not envy the people that had to be huddled together in that press box is that, you know, what show <laughs> unfolded before <laughs> the rest. Um, 
So with that, let's let's talk about some NFT uh, stuff. Finally, uh, early signing day happened today. If you look at the 2021 rankings for CUSA recruiting, FAU sitting on top with 24 commits so far, uh, all three stars, and then UTSA and second have 19 commits to date, according to 247 Sports. Have uh, just made a fantastic recruiting push uh, the last couple of years, but this offseason in particular, uh, with Jeff Trailer coming in to kind of revamp the program, and then you have North Texas. Texas at number three of 247's rankings with 16 far. Rice at number four with 19. And then FIU uh, with the number five recruiting class and 15 commits so far. Um, you know, I think it's worth kind of diving into the FIU stuff if we want to start at number five and then work our way up, Eric. Sure. Um, so I guess, first of all, what do you think about uh, FIU and uh, some of the kids that they're bringing in? I know you've uh, been covering them pretty extensively in that regard. Yeah, exactly. As we're taping this now, it's what, 617? So we have about half an hour, which means I am about four hours removed from Butch Davis's presser regarding the 2021 early signing day. And here are some of the notables before I get into the actual players itself, Joe. want to run this by you. I asked Butch Davis, given the pandemic, what were some of the challenges in recruiting? And he kind of told a funny story. And I, I think I used this for my lead in terms of my story that I, I just published today on Underdog Dynasty. How do you recruit in a pandemic with no in-person visits? Butch Davis said that, hey, we had to create our own kind of virtual living room, right? We grabbed a couch. We grabbed some palm trees from outside. We grabbed from some scenery from outside and tried to make it look as Miami as possible because we want kids where they're coming from to kind of understand the campus that they're going to be on. And given some of the restrictions as far as visiting the campus and, and be able to meet, you know, the coach, the coaching staff uh, firsthand, they weren't able to do that. So we all kind of got a, a chuckle on the, on the zoom call when, which is like, yeah, we grabbed the couch and we grabbed some, some, uh, <laughs> some palm trees from outside, you know, threw them in the office and called it a day and, and did that. But he said that, Hey, it, it kind of replicated that environment of being in a child's or child, excuse me, what am I talking about being in a, in a recruits living room in, in terms of the sense that, you know, they were six feet away. You, you had a chance to get that one, one interaction and that, that aspect hadn't changed. But then the, the next question that I kind of felt like, you know, had to be asked and Butch got a laugh out of this. I said, coach, how many of these kids have you actually met in person? And he laughed and he said, Eric, the first time in my life, I haven't met any of them. <laughs> it's, that's that's kind of crazy to think that a head coach and it's someone especially someone like butch davis who he has made you know gone on the record with us and various outlets that said that i prioritize a face-to-face -face meeting and a handshake and looking in the kid's eye and i get a chance to ask a kid you know hey what do you like to do after school uh after you finish playing football or what are you doing you know and does that kid say oh i like to go work out i hit the track or i go you know play basketball or have another sport he's like hey i didn't get a chance to do that and his quote was, to be honest, there were some kids who we didn't recruit just because we didn't get that face-to-face -face factor. So I will be curious to see how that plays out throughout the rest of the recruiting cycle. Uh, I kind of asked our guy Hunter Bailey, you know, to, he, uh, he could ask Will Healy that question as well, because I would be curious to see around Conference USA how that kind of bore out. But to get to it actually on the actual you know, field and as far as the kids who signed, definitely uh, um, they got, I'm looking here, 11 three-star kids, which I think the biggest takeaway, Joe, is mm -hmm. for whatever stock you want to put in the star ranking or rating, you know, I'm not the biggest believer in it, but whatever stock you want to put in it, the 0-5 season did not scare kids away. And I think that's the thing that you got to be really ecstatic for if you're an FIU fan, because 
a lot of the chatter amongst FIU fans uh, and those around the program was, man, is this season going to really backtrack and take away a lot of the momentum we had off the Miami win? Now, whether or not the momentum has been sacrificed on the field, I think that's pretty clear in that they are, you know, have not won a game since that upset of Miami. But in terms of on the field, they got a couple kids. They got a kid, Artez Hooker out of St. Pete, who would have been a power five guy if he wasn't 5'8", 160. Um, got a couple kids here in terms of Trevante O'Neal, Katravis Jeter, kind of those hidden gems that Butch Davis is known for that, you know, had some power five offers, but maybe an injury there, or the circumstance there didn't get him in. So um, definitely a good recruiting class for FIU and something to be impressed. Uh, I mean, when you look at the rest of USA, I feel like I've rambled on for 10 minutes. I'll pass it back to you, Joe. But the fact that they slot fifth among CUSA teams, despite going 0-5, that's huge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you hit the nail on the head in terms of just the fact that they were able to get such a strong recruiting class, um, despite the fact that they did not have a good year on the field. Um, it really speaks to, you know, that staff's ability to kind of, um, you know, A, find talent, and B, just communicate, um, especially now in, in the time of COVID where you don't have that ability to um, to do a lot of those uh, in-home visits and that sort of thing. But, I mean, if you look at um, – the commits from this class, I would say 90% of them are from the South Florida area or from the state of Florida in general. And I mean, I think that just speaks to a, the talent pool in that state in that, like, obviously schools from all over the country are going to pull from the talent in Florida, but a lot of these kids are more than happy staying home. And maybe that's just, you know, the, the fact that football culture is what it is in the state of Florida and obviously the, the city of Miami. But um curious to see, like you said, how recruiting continues to play out through the next couple of months with everything COVID related. Um, let's talk about Rice. And they managed to keep a fair amount of, you know, talent from the state of Texas in that area. Um, the, a lot of three stars that they signed as with most USA programs. But uh, ultimately, I think they were able to bolster a lot of their you know, quote unquote, non-skill position players, area guys like Ethan Onianwa um, at the offensive guard position, uh, Kenny Seymour in the inside linebacker position, got a few decent tight ends as well. Um, so I'm interested to see how these guys come in. Obviously, Mike Bloomgren knows the kind of kid that he wants, uh, putting academics first, as is the reputation of Rice University and, and whatnot. But um, I think they did a pretty decent job here. Obviously, we didn't really expect them to um, land a four-star, a five-star, or what have you. But just in the sheer number of recruits that were ready to uh, hard commit to, to Rice, um, you got to give it to, to Bloomgren, especially considering the fact that they played significantly less football than 90% of the programs that were able to play this year. I'll wrap this one up quick, Joe. Last year, they were ranked 11th in Conference USA by 247 Sports. You talk about in a year and that you can't bring kids to campus. Houston was affected by the pandemic, and we saw they couldn't play games. You can't bring them to your environment. The fact that not only is Mike Bloomgren out recruiting his last year's class, but doing it under these circumstances at Rice, a school that is a very stringent academic program, or academic university, that's outstanding. So great job uh, with that uh, as far as Coach Bloomgren, what they're doing down there in Houston. Absolutely. Uh, on North Texas, we'll, we'll hit on a few things. One, uh, they fall from three to two uh, so far, obviously, signing day coming up in, in February. But uh, with, with this, um, some decent talent in there for them. Caleb Johnson out of Greenville, three-star 
back. Uh, Varquez Gums, 6'3", 230 tight end. Um, that is a really good size for that position. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see that guy um, get involved in the North Texas offense uh, early and often. Um, and then, I mean, you know, if we look at somebody like Bryce Dumman, the pro-style quarterback of uh, <laughs> Pahuska, Oklahoma, uh, three-star kid there, 6'3", 205. Um, you know, North Texas has been able to get it done with, with little guys in the past, but if they have someone that size coming into the quarterback position, it, it really makes you wonder what Seth Luttrell would be able to do with that. Listen, I, I completely agree with you there, and I, I'm not even going to, you know, like I said, no pushback on that. I think my biggest thing, Joe, that when I look at North Texas recruiting, and uh, I, I hate to kind of make a, a hard veer from the point you make, but it's just something that I think goes kind of without saying. Their facilities, and, and I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of look at them online or, or, you know, anywhere else, but their facilities are top notch in group of five football. So initially, when I had looked at this, I was like, you know, North Texas, okay, they finished second last year, finished third this year, or I shouldn't say finished uh, through the early signing period, they're at this. But the biggest thing that I see is, man, they have the facilities that will really attract a top five top four class in CUSA consistently. And that's definitely going to keep them in contention just, you know, as, as long as they have those facilities intact. I'd expect nothing less from the state of Texas investing those resources in their football facilities. Um, so kudos to them and they're staying in the top five there. And uh, we touched on the improvement of rice in their uh, recruiting. They were uh, 11 last year, bumped up into the top five uh, UTSA followed a similar path finished at number nine last year and now they are number two um jeff trailer really making his impact on that side of the program uh to something to a significant extent uh this offseason uh ron tatum out of northeastern oklahoma a&m uh coming in at 6'5 265 pounds uh number one recruit in the state of oklahoma um so he is going to make a, a significant impact uh quickly and often i would assume uh then you know it really goes down the list in terms of uh talent out of the state of texas and east texas uh, in particular um it seems like utsa is really on the right track and then the uh the odd kid out of new rochelle new york nick evans um from uh from monroe college of course uh coming into that defensive end position group as well um so uh, it's interesting that uh that one got in there too but uh certainly uh, kudos to Jeff Trailer and his staff for being able to keep so much local talent, uh, you know, where it needs to be once again. I'm going to get this right for Jared Kalmus and all of the Roadrunner fans listening. The 210 area code. I apologize for mixing you guys up with Connecticut last time I attempted that. Here's the big thing that I'm going to hit on. Jeff Trailer, a top three recruiting class in Conference USA. That to me was huge because he's already shown what he can do on the field as far as getting the most out of the talent that he had. And that was with Frank Wilson's kids. Didn't say Frank Harris, guys. Frank Wilson's kids. Who Frank Wilson had a, a, a knack as being a good recruiter, but as we saw with his record, bore out that he couldn't get the job done on game day. So the fact that Jeff Trailer is not only getting the most out of those kids, but following up with solid recruiting classes, the sky's the limit for UTSA. That it is. And then this might not be a surprise to a lot of people, but uh, FAU, they are the number one class uh, once again through the early signing period. Um, 
So they are going to go bowling, it would appear. Uh, they're going to play Memphis in the Montgomery Bowl on December 23rd. But uh, before we talk about that on a later show, uh, let's talk about some of the signees that are coming into the FAU football program. Uh, like I said, we kind of expected them to have a good year under Willie Taggart. Um, they had a good year um, under Lane Kiffin when he was there as well. Um, but once again, a lot of Florida kids uh, from the uh, southern part, the Miami and Tampa areas in particular, um, you know, I think it's just it, it really kind of speaks to um, Willie Taggart's uh, brand power, I think, especially. And like similar to FIU, a lot of these Florida kids want to stay in Florida. And of course, they, they reached up into uh, Georgia quite a bit as well. Um, and then the uh, a few from North Carolina as well with uh, William Ford, the tight end from St. Paul's. Um, I don't know any thoughts on that, Eric, when we look at FAU's recruiting class here, because like if there's one thing we can pretty much consistently depend on FAU football to do um, over the past five years or so, it's bring in uh, head turning recruiting classes. I'll tell you this much right now. And I know I went on a rant in terms of North Texas's recruiting facilities or North Texas's football facilities, I should say, but FAU's facilities in terms of FAU stadium, the Smith athletic complex, that is a top tier just in, not only, again, in Conference USA, but all of Group of Five football. And that's going to be a huge selling point, right? So you talk about that. You talk about Willie Taggart, who has a history of being a great recruiter in the state of Florida, his home state, an area that he knows really well. You expect nothing less. And I think the big thing for to spin it forward for FAU is going to be, is going to, be to see what they can do with the quarterback position. They had Shador Sanders signed, and or I shouldn't say signed, but they had him verbally committed. And, of course, we saw what happened with his father, Dion, taking the job at Jackson State. So, of course, Shador decided to follow. Uh, Shiloh Sanders, also from Maryland, uh, or, or was at Maryland, decided to follow his kid as well. It looks like the entire Sanders clan will be running the show at Jackson State. But, you know, FAU's lost there. So the big thing you'll want to see is can they get a quarterback? Is that going to be Chris Robinson returning? It looks like, you know, or, or I shouldn't say it looks like, but there's been talk about that being a, a potential thing down the road. Or if not, are they going to be able to get someone from either the transfer portal or a recruit uh, coming out of high school. I think that's going to be the next step. And, and that will be kind of the the icing on the cake for this class because they already have a solid class as is two really good offensive linemen out of the Tampa area. My former high school, Tampa Catholic High School, shout out to the Crusaders. They got a pair of twins there in the Sandalin kids who are going to FAU, a, a, a pair of 6'3", 280-pound big boys. But if they can get a quarterback to, to kind of cap off this class, uh, I think FAU will be in great shape. Always appreciate the uh, hometown shout outs as well. Uh, so that kind of puts a cap on the NSD talk for now. Obviously, um, we have time in between now and February to uh, talk a lot more about some of these kids that are going to be uh, hopefully freshman phenoms in, Southern, or in Conference USA football in 2021. Uh, but for now, as we start to wrap up the show, let's talk about the CUSA championship game coming up. This Friday, December 18th on CBS Sports Network at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Marshall and UAB, the two teams in green. Um, look, I will say this. Marshall favored by five and a half. Everything that we've seen out of Marshall prior to the game uh, against Rice suggests that they are far and away the best team in this conference right now. Uh, hopefully there's not a repeat performance 
uh, from Grant Wells of, of kind of what we saw from him in that Rice game. Um, and, you know, with UAB, I think between two weeks ago and now they lost Austin Watkins, which is a, a significant blow to their team. And uh, we talked about the Rice game earlier. Had Rice's, you know, star players gone down, we could have potentially seen a different result. And I think – UAB's game plan for that game really kind of came down to take shots down the field and see what happens. And, you know, they had Rice outmatched, and that's kind of why they were off. But I don't think they're going to see a repeat of that against the Thundering Herd. And for the reason, I'm picking Marshall to win this game. So I'm legitimately torn on this one. My gut says go with Marshall, but I'm not going to trust my gut. I am going to trust my head. And here's what I'm saying. If you look at Marshall's uh, their schedule in 2020, they had a lot of solid wins, right? And the best win would definitely be the, the ones that were early on the year over FAU and, and teams like that, right? But I don't necessarily believe coming off of the Rice game, which they played a very capable Rice defense, I still don't think they necessarily played a defense as capable as UAB's. And the, the big thing is going to be if Tyler Johnson or whoever's playing quarterback for the Blazers can protect the football. They're going to get Spencer Brown back. That's where he's been announced. They're going to get you know a, a handful of players who didn't play last week. They're going to get those guys back. And I just think this is going to be the toughest test for you for for Marshall, excuse me. And Bill Clark, this would be just how kind of I had said a couple of weeks ago about FAU if they were able to win the East, given all the the circumstances that face them, it would feel almost like a damn. What else can we do? We cannot knock off FAU in the East. This is a chance for UAB. If they can come back and win the CUSA title and just kind of assert themselves as being that dominant CUSA team, given all the circumstances that's happened this year and Marshall looking like a runaway favorite, I think UAB is playing for a lot. That's not to say that Marshall isn't playing for just as much. And I think Grant Wells is going to be better. But something about my gut says guys like Jordan Smith and Christopher Mole and Noah Wilder and Dijon Turner and Bronte Harris, et cetera. That's going to be a hell of a defense that Granville is going to have to face. And, and I, I just am not 100% sure that they're going to be able to get the job done. I mean, here's the thing, Joe. You're going to see a healthy dose of Brendan Knox. And if UAB can stop the run and force Grant Wells to be a passer exclusively, maybe you get him to a couple turnovers. So I'm going with UAB, uh, I'd say, by a point or three. But something in me says go with UAB. Okay. Going to be an interesting showdown on Friday night, that's for sure. Uh, looking forward to watching it and uh, talking about it with you next week, bud. Uh, so with that, then, let's wrap up the show. Thank you all so much once again for listening to this episode of the Underdog Podcast. We are on uh, Apple Podcasts. Obviously, if you're subscribed there, check us out on Spotify as well. Um, and then with that, if you want to follow us on Twitter at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore at Eric C. Henry underscore, and then at Underdog Dynasty as well. And, of course, check out underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football content. Uh, Have a very uh, happy holiday season. We will talk to you again soon. And, uh, of course, uh, I know most of our listeners will be watching that game on Friday night. Uh, See you. Football watching. 